Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, we are going to share with you an interview that I did with Rod Sellers. Rod is a candidate for Congress in Georgia's 11th Congressional District. And this interview with Rod is really interesting. Among all of the candidates I've talked to, he is the one who is most focused on labor unions and collective bargaining rights at the workplace, but he has a challenge on his hands. He brings a very progressive message to a relatively conservative congressional district. He is taking on Barry Loudermilk, current Georgia congressman in Georgia 11, and Loudermilk is running for re-election in that seat. As a programming note, this episode was recorded on January the 8th, and we talked a little bit about President Trump's ordered strike on an Iranian military commander and the status of the impeachment process. There are certainly some updates on these issues since then, but Rod's responses on both of these issues are still relevant and still useful in thinking about how he would address these issues as they come up in the future if he was to be a member of Congress. So without further ado, I will turn it over to my conversation with Rod Sellers. Joining the podcast is Rod Sellers. He is a Democratic candidate in Georgia's 11th Congressional District. Rod, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me, Kyle. So you are running for Georgia's 11th Congressional District. If I am correct, is this your first race, your first time as a candidate? Yes, it is. Great. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what motivated you to jump into this race? Sure. Yeah. And thank you for having me on. And ever since I became aware of your podcast, I started listening. Thank you for what you're doing here. And thank you for having me on again. So my background, I grew up in Cobb County, Kennesaw and Marietta. I graduated from Walton High School. Um, I enlisted in the U.S. Army as a senior while I was still there. I uh, served eight years as an airborne infantryman. I fought in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Honorably discharged at the rank of sergeant. I came home, moved to Midtown, began my civilian soul searching. I chose the trades over college where I used my GI benefits and, and earned my, my certifications and education as a International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union journeyman wireman. And um uh, that's kind of where I am now. Um, I've kind of gotten into this whole politics and organizing thing as a TYT member and as a union member. As soon as I joined the union, I started becoming really active, volunteering, organizing, recruiting, and most especially, I love raising money for brothers and sisters who need help. Um, I think the number one thing that makes us stronger is pulling those up who could fall behind. And uh, that's, I think that's our greatest strength right there. So if you're elected to Congress this November, chances are Democrats probably had a pretty good night. And your campaign website noted, notes several issues with a national or even an international impact, issues like Medicare for All, a Green New Deal, overturning the Supreme Court Citizens United decision and getting money out of politics. And I want to discuss all of these positions as we go here. But what is the most pressing issue to you that has a primarily local impact within Georgia's 11th Congressional District that you want to go to Washington to work on? Uh, right to work legislation must die. You know, as a union man, as a dues-paying, organized labor rep- or person, I, it, I get flustered when I talk about this because of how much it hurts us and how much work has gone into us organizing, coming together, and using our leverage to bring ourselves up. So when we talk about right-to-work legislation, when we're talking about 
organized labor, when we're talking about collective bargaining, at the focal point, what we're talking about is contract law. So anyone who studied contract law, this nation knows that we have our roots as far back as Magna Carta. The framers of our constitution had a very specific purpose for this government, and that was because they wanted the freedom to exercise as they saw fit with their goods and services in the market and not get squashed by the nobility any longer. They wanted to be able to sign contracts and make their living and have the government there in case of grievance only, not have a tyrannical government there saying, well, you know, whatever, this is what I want to do and too bad for you. So this is where we are today. And in today's day, when you're talking about the labor movement, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. And when we talk about right to work legislation, the Republican Party wants us back down. They do not like it that we have come together and that we have raised ourselves up and they've used the mechanism of legislation to do so. And it's ironic that the you know small government, so they call themselves party, uses big government to push us labor people down. And I, I, you know, I say, come at me, let's do this. Let's have this fight. So your website also notes this importance about, about unions and how unions delivered higher wages and living standards when unions had the most power. What is a congressional agenda that supports the power of unions look like? Is it, is ending right to work central to that? And are there other policies within that agenda that you would pursue in Congress? So just ending right to work. So we have almost 30 states that have gone on their own, and the Republican Party has effectively passed right to work legislation individually in these states. So we need a federal movement just like the civil rights movement. So when we say we come together and we use the stronger faction of federal government that says, you know what, what you're doing is unjust and we need to go ahead and stomp it out, just like the civil rights movement. We do not respect states' rights when you are trampling on our rights to represent ourselves in the workplace. Now, more specifically, the PRO Act, so that is the the Protecting the Rights of Organization Act. That is a reorganized re-extension of the Davis-Bacon Act back in the 30s that we are trying to progress the labor movement and we are trying to progress ourselves as organized workers and the people that actually build this nation and give ourselves the protection that the Republican Party is so adamantly trying to take away from us. And so as soon as elected, I absolutely will co-sponsor the PRO Act. So your website also notes that you support a single-payer Medicare for All system, and you say that, quote, our life should no longer be leveraged against us in the name of profit. Democrats are currently debating the future of healthcare policy, and differences within the party largely fall along this line of whether you support tweaks to the existing mixed but mostly mostly private health insurance system, or whether you support a publicly funded single-payer health insurance system. So in your view, why is the single-payer plan the right one? Well, number one, um, I think it's really easy. Like if you're a consumer and you look at, okay, what am I buying when my health insurance premiums leave my paycheck every single, for me as a construction worker, that's weekly, you know, monthly or bi-monthly, however you get your pay. What am I buying? You are buying, you are buying limited care with caps and gaps. And of course, when we were on my wife's health insurance through her employer, I believe we were paying almost $900 a month with a $13,000 out-of-pocket max. So I am 100% single-payer, 
Medicare for all. I want the profiteers to go down the road. They do not have a place in this. People's lives should not be leveraged against them in the name of profit. My wife survived breast cancer last year. We had to go into debt to hit our out-of-pocket max, and my wife is going for reconstruction next week, and we just worked our way out of that debt, and we're going back in to hit our new out-of-pocket max for the new calendar year. I don't want any other family going through what we're going through. And as a privilege point, we're going to be okay. I mean, yeah, it hurts. We're going to get through it. But I'm a union electrician. My wife is a nurse practitioner. We do well for ourselves, but we understand not everyone has the same opportunities. I mean, man, 500,000 households go into bankruptcy every year because of what we're going through. And we're, we're barely going to get by. 45,000 people a year die because they're afraid to go to the doctor because of one, I'm going to lose, I'm going to miss out on work. And two, I probably can't afford it when I get there anyway. We have to transform our system from a healthcare perspective and not a profit perspective. So this is one of those issues that sort of animates the divide between progressives on the left wing of the Democratic Party and, and maybe more moderates that critics will say are largely made up of leadership, that leadership tends to be the more moderate faction of the party. So generally, what would your approach be if you were a part of a minority within the Democratic caucus on an issue like single-payer health care, where you support a bolder path, but leadership supports a more incrementalist approach? Do you think that groups within the Democratic caucus, groups like the Congressional Progressive Caucus, should be more confrontational with leadership on issues like these? Absolutely. Yeah, um, I think the easiest thing to do is to hit people where it hurts, hit them in the wallet. You know, if I'm in the halls and I have a chance to speak to Speaker Pelosi, I would have no problem whatsoever saying, excuse me, Madam Speaker, you are taking tens of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from the health insurance industry and from the pharmaceutical industry. And I think at least you should recuse yourself from this matter entirely. So another issue that sort of animates this divide is the issue of the Green New Deal and a response to climate change. Um, last year's report, or well now this report is almost two years old, from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that yeah. the world may have as little as 12 years to reach emissions goals to stave off the worst effects of climate change. So what does a Green New Deal mean to you? And what are some of the concrete components of a Green New Deal plan that you would support? Okay. Well, if I may, uh, real quick, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to delve into this a little bit. The reason why that these red flags keep coming up from the science community is because they are constantly having to estimate how much carbon we are emitting and how much methane we are releasing from um, glaciers and these types of things. And there's no real good way of estimating it, and they keep undershooting under the data. So they keep coming back and saying, my God, we tried to be conservative, but we still weren't aggressive enough in our mathematics. So when they said we had about 12 years before a tipping point, now we're looking at about 10, we have to get at this now. There, There is no compromise. If I have children and – you know, this is this is probably the most important thing that we're going to deal with in my lifetime. Now, the Green New Deal itself with. First and foremost, we, if science denialism is dangerous, all right, we've seen resurgence of the anti-vax groups and they're they're getting measles, they're getting polio. And, you know, it's, it's just terrible. You don't 
wish this sort of thing on anyone, but you know, you, you can see the fruit for the tree and there is no turning back. We have to get our carbon emissions under control and the green new deal has to be implemented in the very, very, very near future. We have to put massive carbon taxes on the just small handful of corporations that are actually doing the majority of the damage themselves. So this is where you use the stick of the government as opposed to the carrot, because we, we don't have time for people to figure out what the right thing is to do for themselves. Um, so of course there's the, the human and the moral and the ethical standpoint. And I kind of feel bad talking about this at times, but there's the economic standpoint as well. As a union electrician, if this policy is implemented, this this is sustainable employment, more than sustainable employment for me and my union brothers and sisters the rest of our lives. But again, science denialism is dangerous, and we have to get on this one immediately. Let's talk about some some current issues here that have been going on. So last Friday, President Trump ordered an airstrike that killed a top Iranian military official, significantly escalating tensions between the U.S. and Iran. These tensions have been building since President Trump removed the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal. Since that strike, Iran has formally announced that they will no longer comply with the terms of the nuclear deal. And they launched missiles at two U.S. military targets in Iraq. Uh, This morning, the president made an announcement that he would not be responding in kind to that attack. But the Iraqi parliament has also passed a non-binding resolution demanding an exit of American troops from Iraq, the neighbor to Iran. What has been your reaction to these developments in recent days? Well, I mean, this is very personal to me. I, I fought in Iraq. I was there. And I don't know if you know the geography of Iran. Iraq and Afghanistan are on both sides. This is uh, they they have been very, they have felt threatened, you know, since we've been in the region, and for obvious reasons. Now, President Trump is an unprecedented moron when it comes to terms of strategy. I mean, who in their right mind thinks that? Okay, first off, the Obama administration implemented the pol- implemented the policy and the network to ensure that Iran did not get a nuclear bomb. We held a large sum of money of theirs to the side since I believe it's been several decades, and we used it as negotiating leverage against them and sanctions, and it worked. We had an agreement. We came to the table, and it worked, and the only reason that Trump shredded the deal is because he is a child who cannot stand when other people do well for themselves. So with Trump then assassinating the general, I mean, who in their right mind would think this is not only going to make things worse? This is a terrible, terrible plan. And to be honest, I don't think the man has plans. I I don't think he thinks much at all about the consequences of his actions. And, you know, as someone who fought in the region, as someone who made friends, I still have Facebook friends today who every once in a while, you know, they'll contact me and say, hey, Sellers, how are you, man? And I'll of course, message back. And I hope you and your family are doing well. Let me know if we can do anything for you. And this is, it's just an untarnished, unreasonable, unplanned provocation. And I can only think of two reasons for it. I mean, he, he, either he is completely incompetent or he wants to go to war or both. And that, and that's, that's my two cents on that. 
So progressives in Congress have argued that an amendment considered in the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual defense budget bill, that that would have tied Trump's hands on the strike against Soleimani by requiring Trump to have congressional authorization to launch a strike against Iran. Should Congress have tried harder, in your view, to tie Trump's hands on an offensive strike against Iran? And would you have supported an And would you have supported an amendment that had that goal if you had been in Congress in December? So, yes. So the the War Powers Act, it's it's being trampled all over. Um, I absolutely was supported. We we have to bring the executive authorities back into check Um, ever since the Bush administration, ever since the or the Bush W administration, ever since the Patriot Act. We have too much run amok authority in the executive branch. We have to bring it back. Now, if I were a member of Congress and I would have known that President Trump were going to assassinate you know, a, a foreign national, you know, a, a military officer of a sovereign state, uh, I probably would have gone immediately to the press. Uh, I would have thrown it out immediately, and um, you know, I would have thrown him under the bus unapologetically. Another issue that really has consumed Congress in recent months is this effort to impeach President Trump after a whistleblower report uncovered that Trump attempted to condition military aid for Ukraine on that country launching an investigation into Joe Biden and his son Hunter. In December, the House passed two articles of impeachment that are currently being withheld from the Senate. Had you been in Congress in December, would you have voted for one or both of those impeachment articles? I would have voted for both. Absolutely. Uh, They're both very straightforward. What we're dealing with here is not honest actors. The Republican Party, they are not honest actors. So, of course, I would have voted for it, and it's justifiably so. But my disappointment in Democratic leadership is when you just ask a simple question right now, where is Michael Cohen and for what? And we waited all this time, and and even Michael and the um, the FEC violations weren't even in the impeachment clauses. So – Yes, I would have voted to impeach Trump, and I would have been on the horn all day, every day. Why hadn't it been done sooner? This, I think, taps into another debate that went on within the caucus and and sort of within uh, the conversation on the left. Criticism of Democratic leadership for not pursuing a broader set of offenses within the impeachment articles that were considered. Would you have supported Congress— pursuing impeachment articles related to things like the emoluments clause and his own business interests that he's continued to be enriched from or or other uh, instances of misconduct by the president beyond just this individual Ukraine instance? Absolutely. Yes. So this is my personal issue with the Democratic leadership in Congress or in Washington. You cannot lead from fear. These are timid positions, and they keep giving to the Republican Party, hoping that they're going to say, see, we worked with you. Can't we be friends? And what happens every single time is the Republican Party lashes out and injures them, and then the next time they'll try it again. Like, well, I'm going to work with you, and we can be friends, and then they get hurt again, and it's a losing strategy. No, we have to fight We have to stand on our platform, and we have to meet the Republican dishonest machine with full-on offensive forces. The the fate of our country is literally at stake right now when we want to talk about climate change, and we want to talk about we have a wannabe dictator in the Oval Office. 
we have some very pressing issues right now and timid responses and half measures are not suffice in my opinion. So we've covered a good bit of ground here today, but there, are there any other issues you'd like to touch on before we go? Um, yeah. So in this primary, in this election for this congressional seat, the people of Georgia's 11th district, we have a choice right now. They have a choice. You can either vote for someone who is more moderate or you can vote for someone who has already signed their platform, stood on their platform, an unapologetic progressive fighter. I'm not going to Congress to say that I can work on things. I'm going to Congress to say I am exactly fighting for this, and I'm not backing down from it. So as a, as a veteran, as a union worker, and, and as a progressive fighter, this is what we need. We need hard leadership, and uh, that's, that's exactly why I got in this race. Well, Rod, we appreciate you taking a few minutes to tell us a little bit about your campaign. If our listeners would like to learn more about your campaign for Congress, how could they do that? Sure. Thank you. Uh, RodForCongress.com. That's Rod, F-O-R, Congress.com. And of course, we're on Facebook, Rod for Congress. We're on Twitter, Rod, the number four Congress. And as, as we said earlier, um, I'm not taking a dime of corporate PAC money or corporate lobby money. So if you could donate to this campaign, even the $10 donations mean the world to us because we are completely 100% uncorrupted. All right. Well, Rod Sellers is a Democratic candidate for Congress in Georgia's 11th Congressional District. Rod, thanks so much for joining the show today. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.